This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, Yonatan Nereel, and it's a very different topic than we're used to broaching, that of environmental activism, ecology, and the like. We have a broad range of listeners to the show, and I'm sure there are wide-ranging opinions on these topics. And the reality is they're very complex, and they touch on intersecting and sometimes competing values, both in the broader universal sense and within the specific confines of our tradition. I think Yonatan's perspective is very, very interesting, certainly different than the one I'm used to hearing about, but got me to pause and really think a lot. And part of what we want to do on this show is expose you to high-level, deeply motivated and passionate Jews doing things they care a lot about and they believe in deeply, and make your own determinations about how they may inspire you in your own world and your own practices. So Yonatan leads several different ecological organizations, one an interfaith-based enterprise, bringing together clergy of different religions to promote environmental sustainability, also seminars for Jews, and all kinds of educational resources. Recently wrote a book called Eco Bible, so a lot to learn from and think about there. Reminder, sponsorships and dedications are available. Email jewsyoushouldknow at gmail.com, jewsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at jewsyoushouldknow, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews you should know with the letter U on Twitter. Please subscribe wherever you're listening. Even if you're just listening to one episode, go hit that subscribe button. You'll get all future episodes automatically into your RSS feed, your podcast inbox. Please tell others to do so as well. Show them how in case they don't know. We are, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever pods are cast. Leave us a rating and review if you would be so kind to do so as well. And now to our conversation with ecological activist and environmentally conscious rabbi, Yonatan Nereel. We are here with Yonatan Nereel, the director of Jewish Eco Seminars, author of Eco Bible. So if uh, you're, you're listening, you're probably getting the general hint of what he's about. Someone who's very into ecology and promoting environmental sustainability from a Jewish perspective and a really, really interesting topic and great to have you with us. How are you, Yonatan? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you. Fantastic. So uh, obviously there is a lot of activism and environmental activism in the broader Jewish world, but you probably don't experience it as much in uh, sort of the more religious precincts for reasons maybe that we'll explore today shortly. But tell us a little bit about where you're from, and we'll get to the story of how you got involved in the ecological movement. Great. So I grew up in California, and uh, I studied there in college as well. And where, where I, in California did you grow up? I grew up in the Bay Area, near Oakland. Okay. And I went to a Jewish summer camp called Camp Tawanga, which is near Yosemite. So I was first introduced to the connection between Judaism and ecology there. And I studied environmental issues in college and also did some Jewish studies. Uh, and I came to Israel when I was 22 and uh, studied in uh, different Jewish learning institutes. And I've been in Israel for the past 18 years. Wow. I said, now, before we get to, too far ahead of ourselves, early on, what was your Jewish experience? Was it kind of like that typical American Hebrew school sort of thing? So I did go to Hebrew school. I went uh, uh, three days a week, actually, on a called the Melton program. So that... Um, hardcore. You're hardcore. Yeah, it was uh, more intensive than, than some people. So in addition to learning Aleph Bates, we were also learning some uh, Rashi and different commentators on the Torah. Yeah, and I was also able to, I, went, I grew up going to a reformed temple called Temple Isaiah in, in Lafayette, California. What was Jewish life like in general in 
the Bay Area. It's it's an interesting place. Um, there's a lot of Jews, obviously, maybe a couple hundred thousand, probably, but um, not necessarily as active communities as some of the other uh, that we might think of on that coast. You know, further south in LA, certainly on the East Coast. You know, what was your experience like with the Jewish community out there? So I generally had a positive experience. Uh, my, my family, which is where a lot of the, the Jewish content came from, uh, we celebrated Shabbat, uh, and so we had Friday night dinner. We, we made a sukkah in our backyard. I also, you know, in terms of, there's not a lot of kosher restaurants in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. I know there's one, there's a, in Chinatown, they've got one, right? Yes, there is, there is one there. Although there was a second Chinese restaurant in, that's kosher in San Francisco that recently closed. So, you know, I, I generally had a good experience, uh, and especially in the, in the Jewish summer camp I went to, that, that was probably the, the highlight of my Jewish experience. Sure. It's, it's interesting. It sounds like, you know, most Reformed families probably don't have a sukkah and, and a weekly Friday night dinner and things like that. So that's, that's a pretty decent level of engagement for family that, you know, identifies as Reform. Yeah. So my grandmother... Uh, has a lot to do with it. She transmitted this tradition to my mother, and my grandmother herself uh, studied every Shabbat with her grandfather, who was a rabbi from Vilna. So, uh, sort of a tradition that got passed down through my grandmother, um, which came out in she, partly in the teachings that she gave, but also in the cooking, the Jewish foods that she would make. So wonderful. Do you know much about that grandfather, the the rabbi from Vilna? I guess that's going back five generations. Four generations? Yes. I mean, I have a picture of him. I, I heard some stories from my grandmother about him, but I, I don't know so much about him. What was his name? His name was Moshe Aaron Perlstein. Map. The map. <laughs> he probably went by that in Vilna, the map. Very cool. So you went to, uh, were you interested in the environment at an early age? Was that, do you remember having like a sense of wonder, a sense of engagement, a sense of just general interest in environmental issues? Was that something that was talked about around your Shabbat table or did that only come later? So I also grew up with a good amount of environmental awareness, mostly from my mother. Uh, we, I grew up on an acre of land with an organic garden that I gardened with her. So uh, every winter we would order organic seeds and I would get to choose what crops that I wanted to plant. Uh, we also had an old growth oak tree that the Native Americans probably harvested the acorns from in the 19th century. Uh, there was a creek. We had a big orchard, so I'd pick the fruit. Uh, so I, I did definitely grew up with, a, you know, probably an above average uh, environmental awareness. Um, but this is also Northern California. So the, the beauty of nature um, also has an effect. What was your favorite uh, things to plant growing up? Well, I would like to plant corn, actually, and, and then watch the corn grow. We'd get aphids sometimes. Uh, we also had a raspberry patch, so that was my favorite thing to pick, the raspberries. Sounds great. Sounds delicious. So you went off to college, and uh, where did you attend? Did you stay local? or? So I did. I, I stayed in the Bay Area. I went to Stanford University. Terrific. Go Cardinal. Yes. And don't say Cardinals. Right. It's funny because I live in Silver Spring, Maryland, and everyone around here is very uh, sensitive that it not be called Silver Springs, which is uh, commonly how New Yorkers refer to it. So it's a similar kind of thing. Stanford Cardinal, not the Cardinals. Uh, what were you involved with in Stanford? So I was involved in a, in a kosher co-op called the Kennedy Kosher Co-op, a group of students preparing kosher food and uh, celebrating Shabbat together. So that was, that was a special part of my Jewish experience. I was also in, involved in the Hillel there, as well as in the Jewish study network. Awesome. Oh, there Rabbi Kamen? Uh, no, yeah, the, Rabbi uh, before that. It was Rabbi Felsen back. It's Rabbi Felsen was the head of that, yeah. Uh-huh. In uh, Palo Alto. That's great. Yeah, and I also had a connection with, with the rabbi at a local Orthodox synagogue. You taught a, a weekly class on the Torah portion. So that would go from at 10 p.m. until midnight on Thursday nights. Oh my gosh. Which rabbi was that? Rabbi Yitzchak Feldman. Sure. The rabbi of the synagogue. Yes. Absolutely. I know him. Uh, that's terrific. Did you go into college life expecting to be involved in the Jewish community? Because these are some of the rabbis you're describing are definitely, you know, from a more religious stream. How did that encounter occur? 
So I did go into college seeking Jewish involvement. When I was in high school, I'd already started to take on more Jewish observance. And so when I got to college, uh, I sort of sought that out and, and sought out the other students who were you know, celebrating Shabbat together. And, and, and I also sought out some Jewish learning. Um, and I also took, took courses on that. I took a course with uh, Professor Arnie Eisen on uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel and Martin Luther King. Um, so took some courses in Jewish history. I took Hebrew. Interesting. Now, what you said you became more interested in high school already. What precipitated that? Well, again, you know, it's I, I, I don't take all the credit for it because uh, my mother and my grandmother really, you know, felt that uh, Jewish living was a very important value. And that that came down to me, you know, even if it was through the Lakshan Kogel and the you know, the different foods, the tzimis and the, the matzah ball soup. Um, so that, and, you know, my, my soul came into this world with a certain mission. And as I've come to realize over the past couple of decades since leaving college, uh, Judaism is, is an important part of that mission. Was there a moment, I mean, that you felt, hey, I need to get more connected, more involved? Was it, was it always just kind of bubbling under the surface? Well, uh, I mean, there were a couple moments. Um, I mean, I, I was a passenger in a car accident and uh, where the friend of mine was killed right. and, and that, that had an effect, um, you know, realizing that life is real. And I also, you know, came to realization I, when I was a kid, I used to like to go to the mall. I used to go to the Sun Valley Mall in Pleasant Hill. And I realized at some point that if I, if I continue to live the lifestyle that at, at some point I, I liked of, you know, going to the mall, going to McDonald's, all these different things. Um, if I got to be 80 years old and I'd filled my life with the mall and McDonald's and movies and video games, then I probably would not feel fulfilled in my life. And so I, I made a decision as one of my teachers now said, uh, Rav Yorma Virgil, blessed memory, fill oneself with knowledge, with Jewish knowledge. And, and so I, that's, that's been sort of a guiding message. What parts of Jewish wisdom early on attracted you and spoke to you? Was it the same as it is now? Or were there certain themes that really drew you in early on? And, and was it, again, the environment at all or other aspects? Yeah, I mean, different parts of Jewishism. One of them is the Jewish environmental aspect. When I was going to this summer camp, Camp Tawanga, I was introduced to the connection between Judaism and ecology by the director, Deborah Newbrin, as well as some other people. And, and that was a very real connection, you know, going, going to rivers and forests and, and, and realizing that uh, the Torah teaches about being connected to the land and, and how we treat trees. And how do we, you know, experience God while being surrounded by God's creation? Yeah, obviously, you know, many of the great early authorities, Maimonides, for example, speak about you know, just looking around the world and just appreciating nature. And one can come to a love of God through that exercise. So it's, that's certainly a, a prominent aspect of Jewish theology. So when did you start getting more involved in ecology and environmentalism. Was that during college? Was that after college? How did that start to burgeon for you? I would say it started, you know, in high school, I was part of a club, an environmental club at my high school, which was a, a secular private school in Oakland. And, and then in college, I was involved in a group called Students for a Sustainable Stanford we were involved in the green building efforts there at Stanford. It was building about a billion dollars a year in new construction. Uh, and then I also, during college, I studied abroad. I, I studied uh, at the University of Havana in Cuba. And, and so got to experience some ecological issues there. I did some research in India on renewable energy and in Mexico on genetically modified corn in, in Oaxaca. And part of my studies were on environmental issues. And then when I came to Israel after college, uh, and started studying in yeshivot, I came to realize that Jewish texts say meaningful things about ecological sustainability. And it's, you know, may not even use the same language that we do, 
you know, biodiversity or plastic pollution or climate change, because those things didn't exist in the time that the Jewish sages were writing. But nevertheless, many of the Jewish teachings have a deep relation to ecological sustainability. Did you feel early on that there was this synergy or is that something you only discovered later? I did realize, you know, since I, since probably the age of 10, when I went to this camp, this synergy, and also, you know, I experienced Tubishvat, which is the normal time that that's emphasized that my bar mitzvah Torah portion was the portion of Noah. So that was probably the first time I actually, my, they, my bar mitzvah speech was on Judaism and ecology. It was about the flood and Noah and our ecological crisis today. By the way, my Parsha was also Noah. <laughs> so uh, very cool. Now, you know, at some point you said you went off to Israel and you started studying Judaism more seriously. What were your career plans at this point? Did you intend to go into some kind of environmental activism? Did you intend to become a rabbi? What, what were your early aspirations at that point in time? Well, when I was in high school, I wanted to be the president of the United States. But by the when way, that job I, is still open right now. As of today, the uh, 5th of November, it's not determined. So you might be able to jump in. And <laughs> right. But ho- hopefully it'll be determined soon. <laughs> I think a couple of hours we might, we might uh, be official. But yeah, go ahead. And then when I was in college, I, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then when I started studying the Shivot, I came to realize the, the power of religion to affect consciousness change and to raise awareness. And that's where I sort of changed my direction. Although what I'm doing is, is evolving. You know, I just published this new book together with Rabbi Leo D. And so now I'm entering the space of being an author and promoting the book. And, you know, so it's, I think people in our world today will, a lot of people experience that, that they're not, you know, taking a, a job and then working in that job for the next 50 years. Uh, but that our work evolves. Tell me a little bit about the work you started to do. Once you got to Israel, was it instant that you started getting involved in environmental activism? Who were some of the seminal early role models for you once you got to Israel? How did your kind of journey unfold once you landed in the Holy Land? Yeah, so I came to Israel. I studied in Ulpan to improve my Hebrew. And then I studied at uh, Yeshiva Darchenoam Chappelle's, sure. Rabbi uh, Shaya Karlinsky and others, Rabbi Joel Zeff. And then I, in my second year in Israel, I was on a fellowship called the Darod Fellowship, and I sort of sought out some private learning on Judaism and ecology with a teacher named Rabbi Arya Strakovsky. The next two years, I studied at the Bat Ein Yeshiva, teachers like Rabbi Daniel Cohen, Rabbi Natan Greenberg, the heads of the Yeshiva. And they had a, a deep sense of Jewish ecological teachings. I studied there for three years and then for another two years at Yeshiva Miftar, where, um, where my Chavruta, Rabbi Fabio Yedidja Glasser, um, is also a, a deep Jewish eco person. It's interesting because, from my own experience in the, uh, in the Orthodox world, ecology is, is not generally emphasized as one of the primary values. Not that it's derided per se, but it is, you know, there's so many other virtues and so many other obligations that it doesn't seem to get its due, perhaps. Was that something that you encountered early on, or did you just sort of naturally gravitate towards the subset of teachers who did have those stronger emphases? Yeah, I I agree with you that Within sort of, you know, mainstream Orthodox Judaism, you're not necessarily going to hear teaching on Judaism and ecology at a synagogue or at a Shabbat meal. So I did gravitate and I sought out the teachers who could help me to understand more deeply these connections. That said, I I feel that the the topic of, of ecology within Judaism is a topic that Judaism speaks to. And that's part of why the reason we published Eco Bible which is a commentary on 450 verses in the Torah, in the Chumash, the five books of Moses, publishing it in two volumes. So we just published volume one on Genesis and Exodus. Uh, and, and part of what we're trying to reveal is that ecological awareness is organic to the Torah. And there's a understanding that this isn't just about tree huggers in Berkeley, and this isn't just something that emerged in the 1970s in the environmental movement, but 
that deep within, you know, many teachers, Maimonides, Rav Cook, many others, the rabbis of the Talmud, and, and going back to people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Moses, that there is an ecological awareness that, that Jews have had for millennia. Do you ever get frustrated by what you encounter in the community? Yeah, sometimes. And actually, sometimes I teach at Orthodox institutions here in Jerusalem, and some of the students, whether they're studying in yeshiva or women studying in seminary, they come up to me and they say, here I am, and, and they themselves have a similar outlook as I do. And, and they say, you know, for example, why is every meal that we eat on plastic? You know, why is it all disposable? And, and why is every meal animal products, meat or fish or dairy or eggs? And I can relate to that, you know, and there's, there's definitely room for growth in different institutions. And that's, I think that's part of the work that we need to do today is to try to increase the level of awareness and sensitivity to these issues and to, and to how the Torah itself addresses them. So tell me a little bit about your actual work. When did you found the organization? What have you been actually, like, what's the nuts and bolts of what you do and what you've been doing for all this time? So I founded the organization 10 years ago after I finished at Yeshiva Ramiftar. And the nuts and bolts are, we're writing materials. So this is the third book that I've been involved in. The first two books were with Confein Asharim, which is now part of Grow Torah, uh, based in New Jersey. And we have source sheets on uh, 18 different Jewish ecological topics, from Genesis to Noah to biodiversity, Shabbat, the sabbatical year, Bal Tashchit, Do Not Destroy. And uh, we also have programming that we do. So we connect, uh, we work with groups that are visiting Israel on the connection between Judaism and ecology. We offer webinars on Torah and ecology. We've done programming at camps. We've worked at seven different Jewish summer camps in North America, where we do programs, uh, one-hour programs for 15 different bunks. So that's a a taste of what we do. We also have a social media presence on on Facebook and and YouTube and other sites of, you know, sort of getting out the word on religion and ecology. Do you promote specific causes, specific environmental policies? Is it more about the connection to Judaism or more about encouraging people to engage in environmental sustainability itself? Well, it's both. I mean, a lot of young Jews today are more concerned about ecological sustainability than they are about Torah. And, you know, you're probably familiar with the student climate strike of thousands of students striking on Friday and leaving their school and going to climate protests outside of government offices. So for for a lot of young Jews today, this connection between Judaism and ecology is a very ripe connection. It's something that resonates more deeply than many Jewish teachings that others might share with them or, you know, they might have encountered, you know, whether it's in day school or Hebrew school or Sunday school. So that's part of what we do is just raising awareness because a lot of people, a lot of Jews today don't realize that the Torah says something meaningful about sustainability. A lot of people just encounter it on Tu Bishvat, you know, it's a nice thing to plant a tree, maybe on the Torah portion of Noah, you know, there was a flood, there was an ark, etc. But the deeper teachings and the, you know, the, the breadth of this is, is something that we're trying to reveal, that there's actually you know, a basis in Judaism for not eating meat, for example. In this first chapter of Genesis, verse 30, God says to people, eat plants. And then in the next verse, God says to animals, eat plants. And the Torah says, Vayichen, and it was so. And, and even though people started eating meat after the flood, but there are different sages uh, and, and rabbis today who say that in light of the, the cruelty that, that takes place to animals in the production of meat and dairy and eggs, that it is uh, a prudent and worthwhile and a holy thing to do to reduce or eliminate those foods and to embrace a plant-based diet. Why do you think there is such a resonance? I mean, it's more of a philosophical question. You may not have a theory about it, but why do you think that there is such a resonance between environmental issues and many Jews who are not otherwise that tethered to traditional observance? Well, I think it's because a lot of young Jews today have a deep 
understanding that something is out of balance on our planet and in the lifestyles that we're living. And that if we don't change that, then everything that we're doing today might be for naught. You know, this past several months has been the most intense hurricane season in the Atlantic and the Caribbean. There are places in Louisiana and Alabama and Mississippi and the Florida panhandle that have experienced six hurricanes in a couple of months. I even saw someone quoted saying that, you know, after the sixth hurricane, they've decided that it's no longer tenable to live where they live and they're leaving. And I think a lot of young people realize that unless we achieve a sustainable lifestyle, nothing else really matters. And, and so therefore, Jewish teachings, I think, can, can sort of ring flat for such people because they want to hear, they want people to speak to them where they're at in terms of the issue that's most important for them, which is how can the current and the next generation inherit a livable planet? And so anything that doesn't relate to that, it's like a nice idea, but tell me something about how we can use, how religion can motivate us to live sustainably. If you can speak to me at that level, then I'm all ears. And then conversely, do you have a theory about why there might be some resistance or at least a lack of emphasis within more traditional corners? Definitely. You know, there's a lot of climate skepticism or climate denial among religious people. I think it doesn't have so much to do with the science because it's sort of like arguing, you know, with the connection between smoking and, and cancer. Like at the end of the day, the science is, is very well established in, in climate science. 97% of scientists understand that it, climate change is happening and it's human cause and we need to do something about it. I think at a deeper level, the reason people are, you know, argue about these things is because if we admit that there's an ecological crisis, then we have to admit that we need a change. And at a deeper level, the ecological crisis is a spiritual crisis. And it goes back to something that Rabbi uh, Eliyahu Dessler said a couple generations ago, which is that there's an idea in the modern world that we're going to have this system of progress and we will achieve an ever level raising of the material standard of living. And Rabbi Dessler said, there can be nothing farther from the truth. And in other words, and his point was that the purpose of our existence is not to have a big house and a nice car and, you know, eating a good steak every day. Life is something deeper than that. And what we need to realize is that, and this is what the ecological crisis is messaging to us, that we need to, to focus on spirituality. We need to raise up the, holy, the, the material world in holiness and not be so focused on material consumption. And so therefore, a lot of people, I think, resist this because if we admit that we need a change, then it may just mean that we're not going to consume as much of the things we like to consume, and people don't want to give that up, if I dare say, even in religious communities. Very interesting theory. I guess along those lines, like what causes, I mean, the, we talk about environmentalism, we talk about climate change, all these different things. There is a panoply of different issues that, you know, sub-issues that are implicated in that conversation. What are some of the themes or the, the issues that are most important from your perspective that you would most champion, uh, that you think are, are most critical to address right now? Like, what could people do? I mean, is the, you know, talk about the science and climate change and man-made and responses. You know, I heard a great debate recently on the, the Intelligence Squared podcast about uh, the reduction of fossil fuels over the next 20 years and whether that's viable and laudable. And it was a really pretty intense, purely scientifically based you know, conversation about the economic impact and viability of change and all these different things. So, you know, lots of different people have different <laughs> beliefs or agendas or even within this larger space. What are kind of your pet projects or choice policy promotions? Well, you know, part of what I talk about is, is the importance of individual change. That, you know, we can call for government action and government action is important, but there's an institution in the world which is bigger than government and that's religion. 
And most people in the world identify with a religion, 6 billion people, 85% of the world's population. The U.S. elections are decided by the religious population. And the question is, what does religion say about sustainability? So one thing that I say to people is, well, how about you, if you go to a synagogue, why don't you ask your clergy member if they can talk about this issue? Because most clergy in America, whether they're rabbis or pastors, they don't talk about the connection between religion and sustainability. So that's, that's one thing that I encourage people to do and also to, to learn more about this. There's a lot of learning resources available on Judaism and ecology. And then in terms of, of lifestyle things that we can do, you know, as I mentioned, one is about moving toward a plant-based lifestyle and, and reducing meat, dairy, and eggs. A second aspect relates to airplane travel. A lot of people have reduced their airplane travel in the past seven months of the pandemic. And, you know, life goes on. We're able to live without traveling as much as we used to. And it's better for the planet. Planes are one of the most effective ways of, of depositing carbon in the atmosphere. That's because if when people drive, some of the carbon gets absorbed by trees and, and by the ocean. But airplanes, they deposit the carbon in the atmosphere and then it stays there for 100 years and, and heats the earth that way. So, you know, one thing is to really think about, do I need to, you know, go on a $99 trip to Cancun? Is that the highest way for me to live? Or maybe I could, you know, take a walk in a nature area that's in the county where I live. There's incredible nature that is within close distances of us, and, and we just need to go out to it. What I, I think is so difficult about that, I mean, you talked before about change, is that I think people have a hard time believing that their minor individual effort makes any discernible impact, you know, in the long run, especially when you have, you know, large multinational corporations pumping out all kinds of things at scale, is me not flying to Cancun really going to tip the scales in any meaningful fashion? Yeah, so it's, it's an important point. And I mean, the Jewish tradition relates to that by saying that the individual action does matter. And, you know, the Rambam and, and other sources that we need to think of the world as if it's balanced on two scales and, you know, and, and what we do can tip the scale. So that's just sort of a spiritual orientation, although many people won't buy that. And then, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, wh whether one person, you know, reduces their carbon footprint, it may not make, you know, the biggest difference with 8 billion people. However, we need to live our truth. And each of us needs to live in a place of truth in relation to the ecological crisis. And we can't just sort of be on, on the ship Titanic and having a pina colada when we see the iceberg ahead. And I also think that at the end of our, each person's life, when we go upstairs and the, the master of the world asks us, you know, how did you do? How, how, how were you in this incarnation? So we're also going to have to have an accounting for what did we do when everything was at stake? Did we invest ourselves in, in ourselves living a, sustainable, a more sustainable lifestyle? Did we advocate for change in the ways that we have? I mean, each of us has power. And the way we consume is one of the ways we exercise power. When we buy things from certain companies, that gives those companies power. If we buy things from more ecologically sustainable companies, then we empower those companies. So I'm all about finding our power. Also, people, there's social media. You know, people can share the things that they care about. And, and it's about raising up this issue among all the different priorities people have. You know, I have a, um, in addition to the theory that you proposed about resistance within religious communities, I've just been thinking as we're talking, another theory as well, and I'm curious what you think about it, which is that when we hear about issues, we tend to think in terms of coordinated bodies of information or coordinated positions, groups of positions that people take. I think people in more conservative traditional communities associate environmental activism with a host of other unrelated causes, but that typically are lumped together politically. And that may be a turnoff for them. First of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, if that's the case, do you think it's a strategy to try to consciously decouple environmental issues from these other socially liberal causes or whatever they might be in order to gain greater purchase among religious communities? Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment that that's definitely one key factor, you know, that the ecological movement sort of emerged in the hippie movement 
uh, in the 60s and 70s and that different religious communities associate the ecological movement with the, the political left. You know, part of the work that I'm doing is trying to reveal that there is a deep basis in Judaism for ecological awareness. And if you disagree with me, don't, you don't need to argue with me. Just argue with Maimonides and argue with Rashi and argue with Rabbi Yochanan and argue with Moshe Rabbeinu, with, with Moses, because there are you know, many verses and teachings from all of these great rabbinic sages about how you know, God created this world and we are stewards. We need to take responsibility for this planet that God created, and we don't have any license to destroy it. You know, sometimes I hear from people in, in religious communities, well, don't worry. I don't I need to worry about ecology because the, the Messiah, Moshiach, will just take care of it. Moshiach will just wave a wand, and all the plastic pollution will go away. All the carbon in the atmosphere, the excess carbon will go away. Like, don't, don't worry about it. And by the way, like we humans can't change the climate. Only God can do that. Well, maybe they're right. And, and I hope they're right. But if they're wrong, we will have sacrificed our future and the future of all future generations on this. I mean, there's a midrash, a, a, a teaching from the oral tradition that says that when God created Adam, God showed Adam all the trees of the Garden of Eden. And said to him, see how praiseworthy and beautiful are my, are my works. Everything I created, I created for you. Be careful not to destroy or despoil my world. For if you do, there will be no one after you to repair it. So, you know, on, on the basis of Jewish teachings, we need to care for God's world. And therefore, I, I don't see a basis for just saying, oh, no, this is a liberal issue. And therefore, we're not going to deal with it. To me, that's a betrayal of these Jewish teachings that say, no, we do need to care for what's happening. Because the pushback that I've heard before when having similar kinds of conversations has been that there are countervailing threads or themes within Judaism that it doesn't seem to be monolithic in the sense that there are comp maybe competing agendas. Just for example, on the topic of meat, right? Although, yes there was this concept that originally maybe we we're supposed to eat vegetation exclusively, but that ultimately we were licensed to eat meat. And then there's the carbonate, the sacrifices were a very central part of temple service. And of course, notwithstanding Maimonides position about the future and Riff Cook, but those are outlier positions at the end of the day. And you know, the mainstream majority preponderance of scholars saying that yes, animal sacrifices are vital. And the way that we should celebrate a holiday is through meat, basar. And similarly, when it comes to uh, the Torah telling us that that you should master the world, that you are, you know, the world is uh, beholden to human intervention, to human domination, so to speak. So sometimes I've heard, you know, people push back that, oh, these people who are promoting ecological activity as a primary Jewish value are really, you know, cherry picking sources and, and only highlighting one aspect of things, but there's a whole other side to it and there's a balance and, and so forth. How do you respond to that kind of uh, reasoning? Yeah, it's a great point you're making. You know, for the first 18 years of my life, I ate meat. I ate a lot of meat and a lot of dairy, a lot of eggs. And there's definitely something uh, that brings joy and brings pleasure to eating brisket and chicken soup on Shabbat and fish and all these different things, cholent with beef. And at the same time, I've been to animal operations, both in Israel and outside of Israel. And when I go to those places, I have a deep spiritual experience. And the spiritual experience is sensing that what I'm looking at this concentration of thousands of animals in one shed, whether you know, chickens or cows, turkeys, and the, the animals living, you know, the cows standing on their own feces, the chickens living above their feces, that the system that produces this meat and eggs and dairy is a terrible system. I have an experience that I would characterize as like anti-God. Like I'm like, and if, if I were to actually walk into there, it was like, this is like, this feels like hell, like this place. And, and just like put myself in the shoes of that cow, like the shoes of that chicken, like to live one's entire life in a cage where you can't even move. And just to, just for my eggs, 
it's like, I don't think God wants that in the world. And to me, that's like, that's muvan me'elav. That's self-evident. And it's self-evident to hundreds of other rabbis, orthodox rabbis, progressive rabbis. And therefore, even though it does bring pleasure and joy to eat meat on Shabbat, but it brings so much pain and destruction to do it, that I'm not willing to do it. What about then, let's say, free range or those kinds of alternatives? Well, so-called free range is, it might be a little better, although in many cases, what free range means is that chickens have the ability to enter an open area. But in some cases, what that means is that in this huge shed with thousands of chickens, there's one little exit that's like two feet wide that you know a handful of chickens are able to get out, but for most intensive purposes, they're not. So, you know, if, if someone wants to eat meat, there are, you know, the grow and behold farms in, in the U.S. Um, there are some more ethical options. The, the most ethical option would be to raise one's own chickens or cows and to learn to slaughter them, or at least to know the person who slaughters them. That's a, a better uh, way of integrity um, than just to rely on someone we don't know. Here in Israel, the kosher chickens, according to the the Rabbanut, the main rabbinic body, they're slaughtered uh, once every three seconds. The slaughterer takes them. According to the Mahadran, the higher standard of, of kosher, they're slaughtered every eight seconds. But that means that, that one slaughterer slaughters thousands of ch- chickens every day and does that you know, every day of work for you know, 300 days a year. So it's really the industrial approach to it that's more troubling to you then? Because I, I guess your answer to me from the philosophical perspective would be that you're not morally or philosophically opposed to consumption of meat because the Torah does license it, but the Torah meant that it should occur in a more organic, I mean, or, the word organic in a very literal sense, I mean, in, in, in one's own home kind of environment where you go out and you find a, a cow and, or you raise a cow and slaughter it for your neighborhood or for your family and once every couple months or something like that. Well, I do believe that the vision of the Torah, and this is something that Rav Cooks points out, is that, you know, it's not a wasted verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, where God says to people, eat plants. God doesn't tell people very many things, especially in the first chapter of Genesis. And the fact that God tells them to that a couple of verses after God says to them to conquer and dominate creation is an indication that the conquering and domination that we think of is different because it didn't involve killing animals. That's something that uh, the Toldot Yitzchak points out. And in relation to what you said earlier, you know, of, about Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, of conquering and dominating. So according to the rabbinic tradition, as you're aware, there are many interpretations of those verse. Rabbi Yaakov of Kfar Hanin said in the Talmud that the verse links are being created in the image of God. And therefore, we're only given the license to dominate if we act in the image of God, if we act in a holy way. But the type of domination and and conquest of earth that is taking place now, you know, open top mining, changing the climate, filling the oceans with plastic, like this, this isn't the type, this isn't in the image of God. God doesn't want us to pollute and degrade earth. And so according to, to that rabbinic teaching, if we don't act in the image of God, then we are taken down. And the animals dominate us, and that's the coronavirus. That's the pandemic, which is a zoonotic disease that came from an animal market in China because we're out of balance in the way that we're treating 80 billion factory farm animals. Switching gears just a little bit, I know you also do some work uh, on an interfaith level. You have an organization, Interfaith Center for Ecology. You won't remind me the title, but tell me a little bit about that work and what it involves. I can imagine that you are collaborating with other clergy of other denominations of other faiths and promoting a similar goal. But tell us a little bit about that work. Sure. So I also direct the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development for revealing the connection between religion and ecology and mobilizing people to act. And so, you know, what I've said in up till now about Judaism having deep teachings on religion and ecology, that there's also in other religious traditions teachings on religion and ecology. And many of the world's religious leaders today are saying we need to address the ecological crisis, whether that's Pope Francis or the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh. 
or the ecumenical patriarch of the Orthodox Church, all these, all, and, and Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. It's, it's not just the scientists who are saying it, it's the religious leaders. And so therefore, there's an opportunity to come together and to say, well, let's find common cause and let's build bridges so that we can enable a sustainable earth. That's the basis for the interfaith work that I'm doing. What are some of the like, actual projects you guys are engaged in? Well, we have organized a conference in Jerusalem for a number of the past years. We didn't do it this past year because of the coronavirus, uh, but we've held about six conferences here. And we bring together rabbis, imams, and priests, as well as seminary students who are studying to be rabbis, imams, and priests. Sounds like a joke. <laughs> Rabbi and yeah, it sounds like a joke, but it, it's actually amazing because here in Jerusalem, it's not so common for clergy of different faiths to get together. I guess in your joke, they probably walk into a forest, not a bar. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So actually, but as part of the conferences, that's what we do. We, we get out of the conference room in the afternoon and we go into a forest and we do an ecological walking tour in Jerusalem and in, in nature, the view of Jerusalem and also in the Southern part with a view of Bethlehem. And oftentimes people say, wow, you know, I didn't realize that we had so much in common. And instead of fighting with each other, we can work together. We're all in this together. It's not about us versus them. It's about us and them. You know, the other is a brother of a different mother, sister of a different mister. Do you have any particular stories that you can share from uh, your work with other clergy and any, anything more personal? Well, I'd actually like to share a story that the Nobel laureate Toni Morrison told about a, a young boy who came to an elder woman with a bird in his hands. And he said to the woman, that this young boy, said to the woman, can you tell me whether the bird in my hands is dead or alive? And the woman looked at him and she realized that he was playing a trick on her. And she realized, because if she said that the bird was dead, the boy would open his hands and release the bird. And if she said that the bird was alive, then the little boy would close his hands and crush the bird. And either way, she'd be wrong. He had her coming and going. So she thought to herself and she said to the boy, I don't know whether the bird in your hands is alive or dead. All I know is that the future of the bird is in your hands. And that's, that's the case today. So, you know, in terms of personal stories, I actually went uh, last year to a, a conference in Nairobi, Kenya, with uh, religious figures from around the world called Faith for Earth Initiative of the United Nations. And I was actually on a flight from Ethiopia to Kenya on the morning that the one crashed. I was on an Ethiopian Airlines 737 MAX 8 flight. Uh, and I share that with you just because I'm you know, grateful for the ability to, to still be alive. And during that trip, I actually went for a few hours on a a short safari in the Nairobi National Park with a couple of, of Muslim ecology friends. So that was a highlight of my interfaith work is just, you know, connecting with these people. You know, it's not so often that the Jews and Muslims sort of come together to go on a day-long safari together. In these other religions, I mean, I, I guess Christianity is a little more complicated because it's so broad and there's so many denominations. But within Islam, I'm, I'm very curious. I mean, is the posture with respect to environmental activism similar to what it is in the Jewish world where the more conservative, you know, traditional, orthodox, we'll call them elements, are less focused on it and the more liberal elements tend to be more central. Is there a parallelism in other religions in general and especially within Islam? Yeah, there definitely is within Islam, within Christianity, similar to what we experience in Judaism, that you know, more conservative elements tend to see this as part of a left-wing agenda and therefore not being germane to the religion and sort of more progressive elements say, hey, wait a second, look at all these verses, you know, from their holy teachings about ecology. How can we ignore these? And I actually think, you know, I, I think the ecological crisis is not a crisis of the birds and the bees or the trees and the toads. I actually think the ecological crisis is a crisis of religion. Because for the past 50 years, religion has largely stayed on the sidelines as our ecological crisis has deepened. Every year, greenhouse gas emissions have gone up. Every year, the plastic pollution is increasing. Every year, the biodiversity is shrinking. And until religion gets on board in addressing sustainability, I don't think we're going to have a solution. I think that the, the active involvement of religious institutions is key and is the only way 
to having a sustainable planet. And I also think that when religion engages in this, it will renew religion. As I said earlier about engaging young people, this is what they, a lot of young people want. And therefore, it's a way of bringing new life to religion, but it's already within religion. These teachings already exist in our tradition. They talk about renewable fuels. You can have uh, renewable souls. That's right. The, the greatest renewable energy available on planet Earth is spiritual energy. And God is asking us to tap into that for the betterment of all humanity. Do you get any pushback for your interfaith work in particular? And do some of your colleagues, your compatriots, do they get pushback from their, uh, again, the more conservative elements of their respective societies? I get some pushback. It's mostly on Facebook uh, where, you know, when we do posts and people write nice uh, things that aren't so nice. One second, you're saying people are negative and cynical on social media? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We're breaking news here, my friend. We are breaking news. <laughs> right. You know, we, we deal with those posts. But I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it, it comes down to you know, a serious engagement with these, with these Jewish teachings, especially in light of the current situation. You know, like, let's learn the teachings of Tsar Balei Chaim, of not causing pain to animals outside of a chicken shed. And in Israel, you can go right next to a chicken shed and see the thousands of chickens there. Let's learn those teachings. And then let's ask, why do these eggs have four kosher symbols on them? Why does the kosher symbol not apply to the plethora of Jewish teachings about being kind and compassionate animals? And how can we rectify that? Tell me a little bit about your book. Why did you write it? When did you write it? What's it really about? You said you're highlighting the verses, kind of like a commentary on Torah verses. Yeah. So the book, Eco Bible, Volume 1, an ecological commentary on Genesis and Exodus is now available on Amazon. We published it last month. It's also available on iBooks. Kobo has both an ebook and a paperback. It's a commentary, meaning uh, Rabbi Leo D and I have written on 450 verses, but, but a lot of it is quotation. So there are 700 footnotes. About half of them are from Jewish teachings, and about half of them are from scientific articles. So we're mentioning the teachings of over 100 rabbis, probably a couple hundred, and relating them to the sabbatical year, the Sabbath, Bal Tashchit, do not destroy, uh, all these different topics to really you know, help people realize that Judaism, Jewish ecology is more than Tu Bishvat and Noah. If people want to learn more about the work in general, and especially, for example, like those source sheets that you have sound really fascinating. I would, I would love to see them, you know, and they sound like they could be great guides for classes and discussions and things like that. Where do people access your materials generally besides the book itself? So you can get all those materials on our website, jewishecoseminars.com. If you want to see the learning materials, just go to the learning tab. If you want to see the animals materials, you can go there. And yeah, we have articles, source sheets, podcasts, videos. A lot of them are based on materials from Confinisharium and Grow Torah. So it's, uh, as it says in Pirkei Avot, hafochbo uh, hafochbo dekuleba. Delve into the Torah for it's all in there. Rabbi Yonatan Nareel, the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development, Jewish Eco Seminars, author of Eco Bible. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rabbi Koretsky. Have a great day. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.